we gather to seek, to find, and to share the promise of honest religion. And so it is a sacred time, this, and a sacred place, this. Vulnerability more powerful than strength. It is a sacred time, this. Let us begin it together in song. We make time for centering now through lighting of candles, quiet music, prayer, and silence to get in touch with and to dwell in our center for these moments. We use these first moments for lighting candles of memory and hope or just sitting quietly remembering who you are and why you are here. Thanksgiving is part of a harvest cycle where we plant and then hope that we can be thankful for what we reap. In that spirit, I want to share a short and thankful focus from the Buddhist tradition, showing us what we hope for every time we plant seeds, whether in the ground, in our lives, or in our worship services. Now we have finished. Everyone stand, and we will bow to the Buddha three times to thank him. We thank him because even if we did not have a great enlightenment, we had a small enlightenment. If we did not have a small enlightenment, at least we didn't get sick. And if we got sick, at least we didn't die. So let's thank the Buddha. Amen. Since I wanted my Thanksgiving reflections today to be focused on something significant but fairly distant, I want to use a metaphor to transpose some deeper dimensions of Thanksgiving into history, politics, and life. This may sound like the opening to the sermon of a few weeks ago when I said I wanted to talk about the meaning of life, honest religion, God, Jesus, the Bible, salvation, the Army, Amoeba, the Holy Spirit, the Marine Corps, and playing hide-and-seek. But this is a homily, not a full-length sermon, so it won't be quite that ambitious. Thanksgiving, as we know, is a harvest festival. In the tradition of harvest festivals going back to ancient times, they planted, then they harvested what they planted. Here's the metaphor. What did they plant? On the surface level, on the literal level, they planted the usual stuff. Beans, squash, other vegetables. They cultivated orchards and the rest of it. But deeper, it's different. So let's start with the first Thanksgiving in this country, which happened in 1621 and ask what they planted. You all know most of this story. In December of 1620, 102 pilgrims arrived on the Mayflower, and they landed in Massachusetts. Mother Nature wasn't on their side, though Father Time was. 
They were greeted after a harrowing trip across the Atlantic by a brutal and deadly Massachusetts winter. 102 of them arrived here. By the following summer, only 55 were left alive. Nearly half of them died. Imagine this. 102 people leave their homes, say farewell to families and friends, say goodbye to a whole way of life, a whole world. They arrive as strangers in a strange land, and the land knows them not. It is cold, indifferent, and deadly, and they spend a lonely and fearful winter, freezing, starving, and dying. They bury nearly half of their number. One half of these pilgrims buries the other half. And in the spring, they plant crops and they hunt for food. The crop is good. There's food here after all. There can be life here. This was like all of life compressed into one year. And by late summer, when they could at last celebrate a good crop, half of those with whom they had hoped to celebrate were dead. This was the preparation for the first Thanksgiving and there was not a yellow happy face in the bunch. The first Thanksgiving lasted three days. There was a lot of eating, drinking, and merriment between the surviving pilgrims and Chief Massasoit and his people. According to one source, and sources differ on the menu, but according to one source, the menu for the feast was venison stew cooked over an outdoor fire, spit-roasted wild turkeys stuffed with cornbread, oysters baked in their shells, sweet corn baked in its husks, and pumpkin baked in a bag and flavored with maple syrup. The food was served on large wooden platters, and everybody ate their fill. Now, that's, that's the surface. Now let's work with the metaphor. What did the pilgrims really plant that let them reap this feast? They certainly didn't plant venison, wild turkey, or oyster seeds. What the pilgrims really planted were two crops, hope and empowerment. They planted hope rather than fear or despair, and they planted empowerment rather than just rolling over and dying. Now, that's an easy segue from history to politics. Because to put it in a very contemporary soundbite, what those pilgrims were saying to life was, yes, we can. (laughs) We are, we hope, just near the beginning of a new planting season in American history. And those seeds of hope and empowerment have been planted, my God, on lawns, bumper stickers, and windows everywhere. That's a huge part of the reason that this amazingly unlikely man, Barack Obama, will be our 34th, 44th president. Because after the last round of political seeds planted and the harvest we have reaped from that, people were simply starving for hope, the power to make a difference, and the chance to make a difference. We don't yet know how this new planting will work or what kind of harvest we'll have. 
But we should take time to look over a little bit of the last batch of crops that we've planted because the harvest is damn near killing us. Think of some of the seeds we have planted, not during the last eight years, during just about the past three decades or so. We planted the seeds of what the French have called savage capitalism, an endorsement of high-level greed with only the barest of government restraint. We planted ideas and behaviors intentionally exalting profits over people, stock prices over the livelihoods and lives of human beings. And in the harvest was a crop of American workers forced to compete with the cheapest labor in the world and unable to do so. We sowed the idea that health care was a market product deserved only by those who could afford it rather than a necessary protection of all our citizens as every other industrialized country in the world does. And we have reaped a harvest of perhaps 50 million citizens who cannot afford to be protected from accidents, disease, or astronomical medical bills that have plunged millions into bankruptcy and desperation. Also in the harvest are an estimated 18,000 deaths a year credited to their lack of adequate health care protection. We planted the idea that we could use our armies to invade any country with something we wanted. Now, on one level, we've done this for a very long time, and so have other strong countries. There's nothing new about this. But in the last 70 years, the invasion, occupation, and looting of Iraq was the first invasion of a sovereign nation on that scale since Hitler invaded Poland in 1939. And from this planting of violent militarism or imperialism, we have harvested so far the deaths of over 4,200 American soldiers, and many times that number torn apart physically, mentally, or both, as well as the deaths, by some estimates, of nearly 1.3 million Iraqis, guilty of trying to defend their country from a foreign invasion or of just being unfortunate enough to live in a country whose oil we lust after. I could go on down the list of bad seeds we have planted and the bitter harvests we have reaped, but you know all these seeds, all these crops, and all these harvests of shame. You could triple this list. Choosing the seeds we will plant is not an isolated act. It's interconnected with everything that follows. The wonderfully wise ancient Greeks, I love the Greeks, the wonderfully wise ancient Greeks coined a famous short formula for how this kind of sowing and reaping works, and they even used the same metaphor. Here's how they put it. Plant a thought, reap an action. Plant an action, reap a habit. 
Plant a habit, reap a character. Plant a character, reap a destiny. I think we rob ourselves if we treat Thanksgiving like a superficial happy face festival. The harvest metaphor is too rich for that, and it offers too much insight and power to miss out on. We plant, we reap, then we hope we can be thankful for the crop. But whether we can be thankful or not depends on what we planted and our diligence in nourishing and attending to it. No planting or crops are ever perfect. History doesn't show us anybody who was ever that good. Even my beloved, wonderfully wise ancient Greeks had slavery, had very limited rights for women, allowed only about 10% of the adult population to vote, and seemed to care about only those who excelled above the rest, who beat the rest. One place where we've inherited this from them is in our modern Olympics, which came from the ancient Greek Olympics. If you get a gold medal in a popular sport, it may be worth millions of dollars to you. If you are the second best athlete on the planet, it may not be worth a dime. Look how many have been left out of that. We got that dream from the Greeks, along with all the other wonderful things we got from them. Now, for a contrast, I wonder if you have ever read the full poem by Emma Lazarus that is engraved on a tablet within the pedestal on which our Statue of Liberty stands. She intentionally contrasts our, green, our dream with that of the Greeks because she says we want a different kind of harvest than the Greeks wanted. Her poem is titled The New Colossus. It's named in reference to the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Listen to the poem in terms of the harvest metaphor we've been using and see if you don't hear the American dream in a new way. Not the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The whole poem is so much more powerful than those three lines that all of us know. Those are some of the most fertile seeds of hope and empowerment ever planted. 
that message, yes, we can, is the most fundamental expression of the American dream. Let us plant in our nation and in our hearts seeds of hope and empowerment. Let us tend to them, nurture them, so they might flourish. Let us hope that both Mother Nature and Father Time will be on our side. And then let us pray that when the harvest comes, we can give thanks. Confession is not part of our liberal religious tradition, but I do have a confession to make. The Thanksgiving holiday here in North America is a bit foreign to me. Now, now being Scottish, I didn't grow up with the Thanksgiving holiday, but I don't think we Scots are an ungrateful bunch generally. (laughs) Yet again, any of you who have been to Scotland and experienced Scottish weather know that the lashing rain and howling winds are nothing to be grateful for. (laughs) I hear umbrella makers like it. The North American Thanksgiving holiday does not conjure up for me family memories or traditions that it may do for many of you. And it also feels to me a bit close to Christmas, a holiday which has always been very important to my family. Thanksgiving is in the way of Christmas for me. So perhaps I'm missing the point, but Thanksgiving seems to be predominantly about getting stressed out in preparation for getting stressed out about Christmas. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll probably be doing it this week as we attempt to fly and drive somewhere with everyone else and then express gratitude by eating too much. I've had the privilege of being your intern minister for three months now, so I thought it was time you saw my curmudgeon side. That was it, the Grinch, that's, the Grinch that stole Thanksgiving. Most seriously, while not having a personal tradition of Thanksgiving, I feel that taking the time to give thanks for both the spiritual and material goods in our life is very important. I think it's a healthy practice. A wise person once said that if the only prayer that you ever say in your life is thank you, then that would be enough. The idea of thank you as a prayer, as an earnest appreciation of something greater than ourselves, resonates with me. Giving thanks when we are healthy, content, and life is going well seems easy and appropriate to do. But we're probably too busy having a good time to do so. Giving thanks after we have come through hard times and recovering might even give us a heightened appreciation for the blessings we have in our lives. What about giving thanks during tough times, such as many of us are experiencing now? How do we adopt an attitude of gratitude when many of us are struggling with the various hardships we are experiencing as a nation, as a religious community, and as individuals? I am struggling with expressing gratitude at this time. Complaining would be so much easier. There have been many studies conducted saying that during times of economic hardship, the two things that increase are alcohol consumption and movie going. Such times of uncertainty, many of us do look 
to escape from our situations. Temporary escapes from a difficult situation can allow us some relief from the stress and gain some distance from the issues at hand. Taking to excess escapism can also lead to an avoidance of reality and an abdication of responsibility. At the other extreme of escapism is the tendency to look to blame someone or something for a circumstance. Blaming ours for our own misfortune can really feel good in the short term. We hear of plenty, plenty of blame for our current global economic conditions. Wall Street, predatory mortgage lenders, greedy chief executive officers, our president, the Republicans, Chinese imports, immigrants into the country, like myself. <laughs> Voting for the Democrats four and eight years ago is not immunization to our responsibility or complicity in our current circumstance. Similarly, voting for John McCain four weeks ago is not an abdication of responsibility for what happens in the next four years. If, escape, if escapism and blame are the wrong approach in tough times, then how is expressing gratitude helpful? We usually express gratitude in return for something we receive, such as help of another, a gift, or even simple appreciation for the blessings we have in our life. The gift that life presents us are not always apparent in tough times as we are experiencing now. We are more sensitive, perhaps overly so, to what we have lost or what we are in fear of losing. We may have had less than we had a year ago. Financially, many of us have less than we had two months ago. Do we give thanks for the contents of the glass being half full, or do we dwell on the losses of the glass being half empty? In hard times, the half-empty glass seems the much easier option. Another wise person, who also happened to be my manager in my first job, once said to me, Brian, these layoffs are hard, but it doesn't have to be a good experience to be an experience. <laughs> I've found this observation to be very useful at various times in my life. <laughs> life provides learning opportunities whether we want them or not. Perhaps in times of hardship rather than times of plenty, we can really find what is really most important to us. Perhaps we are faced with limits, loss and scarcity. Times of hardship force us to make difficult decisions that we would rather avoid. External events force us to give up things that seem important to us. And sometimes we find those things to have been more of a burden than a treasure. Many of us turn to religion to make sense of the hardships and losses we experience. Sometimes it can feel like religion is just the spoil sport in our life. When things are going well, religion, religion can be that nagging reminder of, that kind of dampens our happiness by making us feel guilty about our good fortune and reminding us of the suffering of others. Some religious leaders call this encouraging humility. But really, we just can't stand seeing anyone being happy. 
Alternatively, when things are going badly for us, then religion becomes a voice of hope or explainer of our fate. Have faith, then things will turn out all right, or there is a reason for this misfortune, and things will be explained later. The famous American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr claimed that the function of the preacher was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. In my less gracious moods, this actually sounds like it could be fun. <laughs> I think that's my curmudgeon side coming out again. <laughs> While this view of religion as a counterbalance as people's on people's lives between comfort and affliction, is and it's very popular thought, I find it too simplistic and unhelpful. How can any of us in good faith separate people into the comfortable and the afflicted? Life is just not that simple. In our own lives, most of us have that intertwining of good fortune and suffering simultaneously. Our jobs provide us both a livelihood and a high level of stress. Our families can be a huge source of love and support and a burden. Retirement is the opportunity for freedom and a source of insecurity. Even in our religious community, it can provide us with both heart warmth and heartache as we struggle with the trials of life. I think many of us have both suffering and doubt in our lives simultaneously with hope and strength. Religion, at its best, helps us to be grateful for the good in our life while providing comfort for the distress. Good religion reminds us that we can be both givers and the recipients of the great eternal values of gratitude, compassion, and loving kindness. We are not individuals isolated from our surrounding communities, and our actions matter. Ultimately, it's our actions. It's what I am most grateful, grateful for and thankful for, since I do believe what we do and how we do it matters. While not everything we do may seem religious, I believe that how we do things can always be religious. When we treat others with honesty, compassion and respect, that's religious. While it can seem our small actions make little difference to the greater problems we have in our world, our actions matter greatly to those around us and those who are affected by our actions. I actually think our actions, especially actions of gratitude, kindness and compassion, are more significant in troubled times. At such times, people are in more need of help and support, while there is less money and goodwill around. For me, the greatest gift expressing gratitude is the gift of service to others. And in troubled, time, in troubled times, it is often harder to do so. In tough times, then this gift is more needed and more appreciated. Therefore, our gift of service to others returns to us by making us feel more valued. The gift of service to others allows the giver to feel useful and the recipient to feel cared for. 
a gift that addresses both the basic human needs of being valued and being useful, perhaps reflects a variation on our traditional view of thanksgiving. Or perhaps our gift of service to others is a prayer that says, thank you to the miracle that is each of our lives. And maybe that is the very essence of thanksgiving. Or perhaps my view of thanksgiving is too foreign to you. In which case, I'll remind you of the Buddhist prayer Davidson read earlier. Now we have finished, everyone stand and will bow to the Buddha three times to thank him. We thank him because if Brian's message of giving thanks through the service to others was not enlightening, then we had Davidson's message. <laughs> if Davidson's message of a harvest of hope and empowerment was not enlightening, then we had the music. <laughs> and if the music was not com comforting, then at least we had comfortable seats. <laughs> so let's thank the Buddha. Please join me in the responsive benediction printed in your order of service. We leave this sacred time together. Our world needs us and the spirit we carry forth. Amen.